Welcome to episode 260 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Rochelle Smith. Rochelle joined the Air Force because of her mom. It was her service in the military that inspired Rochelle to join and serve. She served as a public affairs officer in the Air Force, and one of the things we discussed was how the military worked to integrate social media into their strategy. She left the military through a medical board but stayed in the Florida area because she loved the community. We also discussed why she started her podcast, Silenced Voices, and what she hopes people will learn from the stories of military sexual trauma survivors. Before we get started with this interview, I want to remind you that you can listen to Women of the Military podcast on Wreaths Across America Radio on Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. And you can listen on the TuneIn app, iHeartRadio, or Odyssey. Now with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Rochelle. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? I joined the Air Force because I pretty much saw my mom as a superhero. She started in the Army, but uh, and she's a nurse, but she started in the Army. I guess that one didn't really vibe with her. So then um, a few years later, she decided to commission into the Air Force. And I, I remember her graduation ceremony. I think I might have been four or five, but like I just saw this beautiful woman in this amazing uniform. And then it was like, wait, that's my mom. <laughs> And I think pretty much every day after that, seeing her get ready for work. And also, uh, my mom is from Grenada. So she took us to that island when my younger brother and I were about eight and nine. And seeing where she came from to what she had built because she joined the military, like I was sold. (laughs) It was pretty much uh, my whole immediate community for my whole life has been military members. And it's been almost a a source of comfort and safety. And I, I just, I really loved everything about it as a kid. I just, just like, I even liked moving, <laughs> which is, you don't really hear that one a lot from military kids. But even now, if I'm somewhere longer than three years, I'm like, okay, maybe it's time to go. You know? <laughs> I really enjoyed it though. Mm-hmm. That military life stuck with you. You're yes, like, I got it did. Itch. It's time to yes. move. <laughs> So I loved hearing about how you were talking about, like, you were like, this beautiful lady. And then it's like, oh, that's my mom. And, like, the two came together. It was my mom's my mom. And then you see your mom in uniform. And it's like, oh, that's a different person. Oh, no, they're the same person. So was she a strong role model for you? Like, it sounds like she has such an amazing story and had such an impact on your life. So what was it like to grow up as a military kid and have your mom just be that powerful role model? I would say it was a little different because um, when I was in elementary school, there would be like days where moms would come in at random and bring like cookies or some sort of baked goods and they would like have lunch with their kids. But my mom would be working like a 12 hour shift, but I didn't feel bad because I knew she was saving lives and doing incredible things. So it was just like, oh yeah, my mom's a superhero. So, But then um, after September 11th, I think it really made sense that wow she's a part of the military uh, because that day I remember uh, they let us out of school early we were living in Alaska at the time and she came home got her gold bag a gas mask all this stuff and then she left and I think maybe five six months later she deployed and just kept deploying after that and um, it really 
made me understand service in, in a much wider context than I did before. Before it was, she's a nurse, you know, she responds to emergencies sometimes, she works days and nights, and um, she's out there, you know, saving lives for America. But now she's like over in Afghanistan or Iraq. And back then, FaceTime wasn't a thing yet. iPhones weren't around yet. And so we only heard from her when she got time to, or I think there was probably a line for the phones too. So when we were lucky enough to to hear from her, it was always just this huge deal. It was wonderful. So I, yeah, it really put things in perspective where it was just like, she's a hero. And I think um, my younger brother actually ended up joining too. But I think just seeing that really influenced the both of us. Yeah. And I mean, that was a big change. The military, like her job, you said it was more like not a nine to five because she was working all kinds of crazy hours and uh, doing the mission, but it was peacetime. And then, you know, that switch and it was like she got her go bag and it was time to go and everything changed. So how old were you when September 11th happened? I was in seventh grade, so I'd say I was 12. And then when she left for the deployment, did did you have another parent figure or did you go live with grandparents? How did that all work? So my dad, <laughs> he, he was, uh, he just took over and he did his best. And we always tell this story about um, my parents are vegetarians, but um, my brothers and I eat meat. And we tell the story of how my dad bought a whole chicken and then he like loaded up the grill in our backyard and uh, put way too much lighter fluid on it and just you know there was just like a <laughs> but then he put the like somewhat still frozen chicken on the grill and just closed it and hope <laughs> for the best so um after that when it came out and the chicken was like pretty much black on the outside but pink on the inside we were like okay we all need to learn how to cook and Honestly, that was a, a great thing that, that came out of deployments is we really learned how to be responsible quickly and early where um, when she came back, of course, like, you know, moms have to put their house back in order. They have a, a certain system they're used to, but we were just like, well, this is how we're doing it now. And she's like, yeah, okay, we'll see how long that lasts. But it was, it was like an exercise in, in self-reliance and, and maturity and, and resilience because um, when you lose a, a parent like that for just a small amount of time, the, the dynamic really shifts within your family. And then it changes again when they come back. For sure. And was your dad in the military? Nope. <laughs> he said uh, he was happy to just ride in the airplanes, you know, and get from destination to destination. But um, he's doing real estate now. It's it's really been amazing to see the support that he's given my mom throughout the years. Um, they were high school sweethearts. And I I can't tell you how many times they've been separate for long amounts of time, but they support each other through everything. They're best friends and uh, they get on each other's nerves, of course. But like at the end of the day, I know if like something happens, my parents are like a force of nature. <laughs> they take care of it. I really love hearing that story, especially because, like, even today, it's not very common for a male military spouse. And, like, especially, like, before in the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, it's it's was even more uncommon. And so it's really cool to hear that story of, like, how he supported her and how, you know, 
how they have such a strong relationship being separated together, you know, having kids, having a family, going through deployments. And so that's a really cool story to hear. You talked a little bit like about your why and your mom, but ultimately you had to decide like, I'm ready to join the military. So what was that process like when you were looking into joining? Well, initially when I had graduated high school, um, I ended up staying in Germany another year and my best friend, he was like, hey, I'm going to enlist. You want to enlist too? Like do the buddy program. And I was like, oh, I guess. Sure. And I went and asked my mom and she was just like, how about you wait <laughs> and commission? And I was like, what's the difference? And she explained it and I was like, oh, okay. So um, yeah, when we got back to the States, um, I ended up going to University of Texas, San Antonio, and joined ROTC and got the scholarship and just went through the program. And it was actually a really great experience. Like a lot of the the friends I made there, I still have now. And those bonds, like when you go to field training, like those are bonds you don't really break. <laughs> I'm like one of my friends and I will text each other every now and then because a tornado actually touched down right where we were in the me- middle of an exercise. So like whenever there's a tornado somewhere, there's always just a like an emoji of a storm cloud. And like, remember that time? <laughs> But that was terrifying. But um, yeah, I just—I don't think it was like a a huge decision. It was more something I always knew I'd do. But I, I guess I just didn't know which job it would be. I was pretty sure it wasn't going to be nursing because of the the story she told at the dinner table. But I got lucky and I I got um, public affairs after majoring in communications, so that worked out. That's great to hear. And I love that you were like, I'm going to enlist and I'm going to do the buddy program, and your mom's like, no. That's not what you're going to do. And it's such a like interesting dynamic because I think sometimes we think like my husband was like, but our kids should know this. And I was like, no, your kids only know like what you specifically tell them. And you probably have to tell them a bunch. I mean, you were older, so it's a little different. My kids, I feel like I have to tell them the same thing over and over. But you think like, well, obviously, you know, what an officer and enlisted are, you've been around the military. But if you, no one tells you then you don't know because you're just, you know, living life, you know, going through the motions and you don't even know that there is a difference or that there's different paths or how, how to join and all those things. So I love that she was like, no, let's, let's steer you in this direction and, and help you get started. Cause you did want to, you knew you wanted to join and you probably were like, I don't, I'm just going to do whatever. I think when I was looking into joining, I was like, I'll just do what everyone else does. I'll go to a recruiter and that's what you're supposed to do. And then you find out, oh, no, there's like a bunch of different options, a bunch of different ways to join. So and I love that you got to do public affairs, especially with a degree in communications. Yeah, I was so lucky because I I was just I was terrified I was going to get something like, uh, I don't know, contracting or finance. I'm terrible at math. And I think that's very important with both of those jobs. Yeah. So you you had a great experience in ROTC, and then you got the career field that you wanted, and then it was time to head off to your first assignment. So where did you go, and what was that like? I was at uh, Fairchild Air Force Base up in Spokane, Washington, and uh, the day I got there, I learned it wasn't pronounced Spokane. <laughs> so after that, it was kind of a, a crash course. I'd never been to Washington State before, and it's absolutely gorgeous up there. There was, there's like Seattle side is kind of the cloudy, uh, warmer area because it's right on the water. And then the Spokane side, it's like 
snowy and freezing cold all the time. Um, but the springs are gorgeous. And I think Fairchild was a, a really good place to start because the wing commander that was there at the time, he was really gung-ho when it came to public affairs. And I think back then, I wouldn't say that commanders were like suspicious of public affairs, but it was more okay, you guys do the base tours and you do the base paper. But our commander saw that public affairs was this great tool to get involved in the community. And he was all about social media when other commanders were like, why do we need to put any of this on the internet? You know? <laughs> so um, he really wanted to embrace all of that. And also he was just like a, a really great mentor to have. And yeah, that. First year, I, I ended up going to tech school over at Fort Meade, and um, that's Defense Information School. That was really fun. Uh, and there, that's um, that's where they pretty much prepare you for anything that could happen in your, your public affairs career. And then I got back to Washington, and anything happened. <laughs> so uh, it was a lot. Um, my first year, there was an aircraft crash. Um, it was a Shell 7-7, the, the KC-135 over in um, Kyrgyzstan. And then there was like another incident that went national with the POW MIA symbol. <laughs> and then we had an air show after sequestration and just all sorts of things happened. It was, it was just, uh, it rarely seemed like there was a day where we just sat around and did nothing. <laughs> I mean, there's always something going on. I mean, just the base dynamics of like helping people with promotion ceremonies and different ceremonies and different things like that. There's like so much stuff going on in the PA field. And then on top of that, you have news stories and other things like, and you know, all the, there's, yeah, PA is, is a busy, it's a busy job. There's so much to do. So how long were you at Fairchild? I think just about two years. Yeah. And after that, I went to um, Air Force Special Operations Command. So I was at Herbert Field, uh, right in the panhandle of Florida. And holy cow, that is like one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Those beaches were unforgettable. <laughs> it's a really nice place to live. Yeah. Yeah. It was gorgeous. And the AFSOC mission is just like, it's so cool. Everybody wants to learn about it and everybody wants to, like, in that area, they want to have some sort of tie to, like, oh, yeah, I know these special operators and this and that. And, like, but it was, it was very cool. Um, my position was at the squadron level and I pretty much took over the, the digital marketing. So I had the Facebook and we opened up a, what was it, an Instagram and Twitter and kind of went from there. It was, it was a really great experience. So you were doing PA kind of as the like advent, not advent of social media, but where like bigger companies like the DOD started to embrace social media. So were there any like pitfalls or challenges that you guys ran into while you guys were making that transition? Yeah, it was, I would say that a lot of like the smaller agencies on bases, they wanted to have their own pages rather than like be a part of like let's say force support you know that covers a lot of things but there would be all these little individual shops that wanted to have their own pages so it was trying to find all of these and weed them out and be like hey these are the directives and guidelines that we've actually come up with now that we need to stick to 
because I would say probably around, yeah, 2012, 2013, it wasn't really something that was standardized yet. Um, so yeah, making it standardized was a process. And like a lot of people, they're like, oh, well, I have a Facebook account. This, this is easy to do. All I have to do is like, you know, click and take a picture and write a caption. And it's like, well, actually, we do need to check for OPSEC and all these other different factors just to make sure this post is okay, which is why we want to have it all under specific umbrellas rather than like the base gym post something and then someone from the DFAC post something somewhere else. And it's it's just a it's like herding cats. Well it's easy to see how we get under out of control with like different entities just doing their own thing and and without like limited guidance of what you're supposed to do. I think even today there's still like questions like as an individual, what can I post on social media? And like, as a service member, like, how do I find that balance? Because there's a lot of active duty influencers. And how do you like draw the line of what you can and can't do? And I feel like that was a discussion at I went to the Joint Women Leadership Symposium in 2022. And uh, that was a topic that came up multiple times in different things that I was in that people were like, I want to write a book or start a YouTube channel, but I don't know like where the line is. And I think it's still something the military is still trying to, you know, adapt to and evolve and figure out. The thing is, is with communications or just social media in general, something that might be okay today, November 3rd, could be wildly offensive on November 4th. <laughs> and how do you like go back and retcon and be like, oh, okay, we didn't know. Like kind of like how I think now it's very rare to see a baby girl named Karen. Like all of a sudden it became this like super like, oh, okay, this is offensive, but that's just how language changes. So it, it is really hard to come up with what's called public affairs guidance, I, I remember. And it's hard to come up with guidance for something that's always changing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It is always changing. There's new platforms, new like ways to do things. And then, yeah, I like how you said that like something that you say on one day, like the next day could be you know, offensive or, you know, people have lost their careers for stuff they've put on social media. So it's a very dangerous area and you have to be very mindful of what you're putting out there. And so how long were you at Hurlbert? Um, I completed uh, about a year and a half there. Um, but then I got med medically retired, had gotten med boarded out. Unfortunately, um, in my Senior year of college, I made the mistake of just dating a, a terrible person, and um, it really affected my mental health. And then when I'd gotten to my first space, I really wasn't, I don't think, in like a good space to kind of fend off, you, you know, as a service member that's female, like there's just a lot <laughs> that you have to deal with in terms of harassment and whatever else. And I think after being in that relationship, I was pretty much afraid of everything, including my own shadow. So it was at that time, I think like the PTSD and the anxiety and all of that stuff was just starting to manifest because I was around 23, 24 years old. And it came to the point where I was like, I don't think I'm fit to serve. <laughs> you know, there was like a hospitalization and I was like, 
yeah, I don't want to like gum up the mission because my mental health is not where it needs to be. But yeah, I got medically retired out and actually ended up staying in the area just because I, I loved it. Like, although it's like a slow beach town, it's still this huge like military community. So I was just like, why wouldn't I stay? <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. So you found like a community and a place to be. And so you were like, why don't I just stay here? And so yeah. So what was that transition like? I I mean, I, I've heard not good stories about med boards. And like, just the process of like the med board is sometimes traumatic. So you were dealing with mental health already. So what was yeah. that experience? Um, it is difficult, because although um like you might have a particular trauma or um, ailment, I guess might be the best word. You do have to go to all these different appointments. And if it's like some sort of trauma like that uh, boyfriend, I had to recount the story of, of what happened multiple times. And um, I had gotten a, a lower back injury from that relationship. And Although I have back pain, the way they determine like the disability is a certain, I can't think of the word, but like you kind of just have to touch your toes. It's a, a mobility test. There we go. And although I have back pain, it doesn't affect my mobility. It's more of a, if I stand too long, then I just, I can't stand anymore. <laughs> but that's not how it, that uh, disability rating is determined. And if you don't know that ahead of time, which most people don't, uh, you really have to go back and put in for a new disability rating after you separate. But then that means you have to go do all of those appointments again and tell those same stories over and over again. And it's it can be re-traumatizing. Like I, I did not enjoy that process whatsoever, but it was necessary though. So <laughs> yeah, something really hard, but also necessary. Yeah, I I interviewed someone and she, we did the interview and then she was like going through her claim and like it did, it brought back a lot of trauma and like she kind of fell off the map for six months and I was really worried about her and then finally I was able to get in contact with her and she was able to get help and get through it but she was telling me about like how that talking about the experience and going through that was really traumatic and it brought back things that she thought she had dealt with and then realized no there's still a lot of trauma that I'm dealing with and so yeah trauma is like that where you can have three great months you know and then I don't know you might hear a particular song and it's not even the whole thing it's just a snippet of it or you smell something that triggers a memory and the next thing you know you're having a panic attack in the middle of a Costco and nobody knows why and and you honestly don't know why either so it's it's not a good feeling and then it it does also feel like it takes away from the progress that you thought you've made so like when when i do speak with anybody that's been through similar traumas i i, I know it's cliche but healing isn't linear so definitely just take it day by day and if you have a setback that is totally okay it's it's uh setbacks are all in how you deal with them you can either learn from them and move forward or sometimes setbacks set you back but it, it's all in in how you um perceive it how you use your your coping skills and your you know safety network around you your support network and if you have the opportunity to get mental health treatment or 
even the the different kinds of therapies. Uh, not everybody responds to talk therapy, but there's music therapy, equine therapy, EMDR, art therapy. There's there's a lot of different avenues to to get help. So try all of them if you can. That's really true. And I found meditation to be like one of the best tools for me because um, it helps me to like calm myself and to focus. And I just started a book. It's fiction. And it was about a girl in Afghanistan. And I was like, whatever. When I got the like email about it, I was like, oh, that'll be fine. And then I like read it and I could just feel my body like tensing. And I was like, yeah. It's weird because I've read books of, like that are memoirs of people's and that's why I was like, it'll be fine. It's not a big deal. But something about the like the date or I don't know, but I was like, apparently I can't read this book, <laughs> even though I thought I could because I've done all this like mental health work. Like I could feel my body physically reacting, which in the past I wouldn't have noticed it. But I was like, yeah, I I feel my body being like, no, don't do this. Like and so I. I haven't been able to read it, but it's funny because I was like, I've read memoirs. Why is this book bothering me? You'd think it'd be fine. It's fiction. It's not even a real story, but there's something about it that triggered me. And so you have to listen to those triggers and say, like, I can't read this book, even though I want to, just because. And, like, everyone's story is different. Like, what people experience, you know, something's might affect them and other things might and you can't you can't judge people and you can't like judge yourself of it's everyone's unique journey oh yeah and my advice as someone that's had many panic attacks in public is it's okay <laughs> it's completely okay i know it's it's absolutely mortifying but uh, on some level people understand they might not know what you're going through or what caused it, but they either know somebody that has something similar going on in their life or they have it going on in their life. So it's, I don't think anybody that has like a good heart or a good soul will sit there and tease you about it unless it's like a, a friend that feels close enough to tease you about it. But um, yeah, other than that, like it's, it's okay. <laughs> it's, it's completely okay. Yeah. And since we're talking about mental health and, um, trauma. I want to talk a little bit about your podcast, Silence Voices. Why did you decide to start a podcast highlighting the stories of trauma that people experience? Um, well, it's kind of interesting. Is like I'm a survivor of MST myself, and um, I am someone that frequents Reddit. <laughs> I've been using Reddit since I think 2010 or so, but in the last year or so, um, there's a, a female-oriented subreddit. It's called 2XX um, Chromosomes. And I noticed that maybe every month to month and a half, a girl that was high school age, probably like 16, 17, she'd be like, hey, a recruiter came by and I'm thinking about joining the Army or the Navy or um, Marine Corps, any of them. And she would be like, what was your experience? Do you think this would be a good choice? And thousands of these comments were stories about harassment and sexual assault. And it was just so many of them. There were enough, too, also that said, I, I didn't have that experience, but I do know other people that did to kind of balance those out. But I, I, even as a survivor, it didn't really dawn on me how pervasive it was until I'm, I'm reading all of these comments and these are people of all age ranges and they've been stationed all over the world. 
And um, during my time in, I had seen that documentary, um, The Invisible War, and it was also survivor stories of people in all the different services just explaining what had happened to them while they served. And I remember that one having pretty profound impact on me. And I had mentioned it to someone else saying like, oh, yeah, I think everybody should see that within their career. And they're like, I mean, that's a great idea. But say that they show this documentary every April, which is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, like it's going to lose its impact if it's something that's just, you know, shown month or every April year after year. So then I thought, well, if there's a podcast and it's a unique story week after week, it's something that people won't really get desensitized to. And also they'll understand that it doesn't matter, male, female, officer enlisted, sometimes dependent, or uh, even people that are civilian and just happen to be around the wrong person. Like it is very pervasive. And I think the goal is that if people hear all of these unique stories, it's something that really can't be ignored. It's not something where people can say, oh, they're working on it. And it's just like, I mean, well, now if you know about it, there's this incentive for them to work on it a little harder and actually make change. Yeah, because you can look at statistics all day long, but they don't, not that they don't matter, but they don't have as much power or meaning until you hear a story and like how this affected someone's life. And Like, the people have shared about military sexual trauma on this podcast, like, their stories are so heartbreaking and um, so challenging to hear, but they're so important to hear because people need to hear their stories. They need to hear how it affected their life. They need to hear about, like, how the trauma affected them, but some people, it's the betrayal after the trauma from leadership that is actually... The thing that is even more traumatizing to a traumatic situation. And so I think it shows the, like, it's not just tied to the event. It's also tied to, like, the military's response. And if you don't hear the story and you just see a statistics, then you don't really understand, like, all the levels of detail and how it is affecting the force as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. And then the person that survives an assault or maybe years of harassment, um, they're not the only person affected by it. Like their family is like when all of the anxiety and PTSD and whatnot starts to manifest, like their their family members are impacted, their coworkers are impacted, even random strangers that I don't know why I keep bringing up Costco. But <laughs> if you have a panic attack there, then that's an even wider network of people that are affected. So sexual trauma to me is not an isolated incident. It affects, honestly, it affects the world. (laughs) um, If you think about it as like a giant spider web, like it touches everyone. Yeah, and so many people don't realize how it affects them because they don't hear the stories. And then I think it's really so great that you're talking about a topic that is so important to talk about, not easy to talk about, both, I mean, as an interviewer and as, you know, a guest. Your guests are so brave. And so I really encourage people to go and check out her podcast, Silence Voices, so that she can you can hear these stories that people are willing to share and just and maybe it'll help people take action and to start to make change. So I think it's a really important cause. 
Yeah, I I just I definitely think like after women like uh, Vanessa Goylan that that lost their lives and and she's unfortunately one of many like it it should never get to that point. Yeah, for sure. Her story is like so powerful and it was raised to the media's attention, but it's one of many and not enough people hear all these stories. Is there anything from your time in the military or your transition that we didn't cover that you wanted to cover? Yeah, I would say while you're in the service, um, make sure you find a great mentor. Uh, Make sure you surround yourself with with great people. Um, If someone isn't like writing for you, like if, if they're not out there thinking like, okay, they just achieved this. I need to work harder now so that I can do it. And you guys are, have like a, a friendly sort of competition where you're just like motivating each other to improve. Don't hang around people that aren't like that. <laughs> and also, um, if you do hear of an example of MST um, around your base, whether it's within your shop or somewhere else, and there's rumors going around, please don't repeat them. And, and just call out the person that is repeating it and be like, look, you need to stop because um, like you said, it's, it's the response, but it's also one thing that I've noticed as a common thread in each of the interviews I've done, even with one of the guests that was a dependent, it was, she felt like the rumor mill destroyed her life where um, she didn't even finish high school. So um, yeah, it's, that um, MST itself is already very isolating, but then to have your community that all, all these people that you're supposed to be able to trust and rely on start, you know, filling in the blanks with a bunch of nonsense of things that are probably completely far from the truth. It really just kind of breaks you down more mentally and emotionally. So call people out, tell them that's inappropriate and don't be afraid to be that guy. <laughs> I love that. That's great advice. I love that you gave advice for people who are on active duty. Um, and now you get to give advice for those who are considering joining the military. What advice would you share with young women who are considering joining the military? Um, I would definitely say know who you are and know what you want to accomplish. Just as a, a young woman, a lot of people are going to tell you that you can't. <laughs> uh, they're going to tell you whether you're like, oh, I want to be a, a general someday, or I want to, I don't know, be instrumental in some sort of operation, something like that. Like, there'll be plenty of people to shoot you down and be like, yeah, don't listen to them. You know what you're capable of, and you might not even know what you're capable of. Like, I personally, I found myself in charge of putting together an air show in half the amount of time that is usually given. And I was a brand new second lieutenant still. And um, sequestration had just happened after a government shut down and they gave me a budget of zero dollars. <laughs> and I had to I had to do all of the public affairs fun- functions with nothing. And um, it ended up that to that point, that was the largest attendance they'd ever had at an air show. So you don't know uh, what you're capable of. So yeah, trust in yourself, believe in yourself. Don't let anybody tell you that you can't do something because they can't do something. Such great advice. Thank you so much for being a guest, for sharing your story, and for the work you're doing to share the stories of other women who have served in the military and dependents and men and everyone affected by 
uh, military sexual trauma. So thank you so much for what you're doing and for being a guest. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.